Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then uh, Katrina's going to keep coming around and handing out papers, because Joe is tired of all this dilly-dallying around. Father, we thank you so much for this day you've given us and this time that we have to look into your word, to study what it is you've revealed about yourself. Help us to grasp more of what you've said about the Holy Spirit, that this would be not just head knowledge, but that this would be knowledge we would apply to our lives and that we would grow closer to you because of our time spent together in this study. And we ask for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Page 24 is where we are, so find page 24. Um, I don't think so. I think we're out of 24s, unless someone else has an extra one that got around somewhere. But page 24 is where we'll be, the middle of the page, right in the middle. We covered last week how Genesis 1, verse 2, and Job 33, verse 4, reveal that the Holy Spirit is creator. And if He is creator, that means He is not what? Yeah, that's right. If He is Creator, He can't be creature in any sense. So um, that is vitally important. We uh, look to the Bible and we do not see anything that hints at God created the Holy Spirit. But instead we see that the Holy Spirit is infinite, eternal Creator. And we started looking at this list last week and we saw explicitly in Hebrews 9.14 where it says the Holy Spirit is eternal. He is the eternal Spirit. In 1 Peter 4.14, we see that He is glorious. The Holy Spirit is glorious. And now we're going to turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 35. That's where we're going next. This is new material today. Luke 1.35, and we'll see what other attribute is given to the Holy Spirit in that passage. Luke chapter 1, and we will look at just verse 35. And there is a lot to see in this one verse. There are a lot of Things we could say about the Holy Spirit just based on this verse. You have, thank you again, Katrina. You have the angel speaking to Mary, the angel Gabriel. And let's have someone read this verse, Luke 1, 35. Who's got it for us? Luke 1, 35. Mike? Wow. So let's start pulling some information out here of this one verse about the Holy Spirit. We see, of course, there's power tied to the Holy Spirit. He is powerful. He is going to come upon Mary and with His power going to cause her to carry the Holy Child, the Son of God. You'll notice here, too, that He's equated with the Most High. It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. I think we're talking about the same event here, right? The Holy Spirit coming upon her is the power of the Most High. Who could be called the Most High but God alone, right? No one is higher, more high than God on the chart, on the ranking system. And so if the Holy Spirit is the Most High, well, He's being equated with God. You'll notice it says here too, for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God because He is coming upon her that for this reason, that the Most High is overshadowing her, the child is going to be called the Son of God. So again, there's an emphasis on the result of His action creates something that is holy and one who can be called the Son of God. We can look at this verse, and I, I kicked this uh, question around with some friends of mine yesterday, thinking, is this the proper way we can phrase this? And we kind of landed on, yeah, yeah, I think we can. You could say that the Holy Spirit created the human body of Jesus Christ. Of course, Jesus, as the eternal Son of God, was never created. This is all of a sudden bright, isn't it? There we go. Uh, Jesus, as the Son of God, was never created. 
He's eternally the Son of God, and we've looked at that in our Christology study already. However, his human body did not always exist. There had to be a human body prepared for the eternal Son of God. And how did that human body come into existence? Well, verse 35 tells us, because the Holy Spirit comes upon the Virgin Mary, the Most High, His power overshadows her. That is the creative act that generates the human body of Jesus Christ. And so again, you see the Holy Spirit as creator here, don't you? So, um, out of all the things we could say, <laughs> um, one of the labels that you could put here is the Holy Spirit is omnipotent. He's omnipotent. As we think about the attributes of God going all the way back, sheesh, uh, we're going back now to page three, page four in our notes. Uh, we're now up in the mid-20s. But uh, going 20 pages back in our notes, we see that these attributes, omnipotence, omniscience, omnipresence, these are attributes of God. And here the Holy Spirit is said to have such attributes. He is powerful, so powerful, that when He overshadows the Virgin, she is found to be with child. Okay. Thoughts or questions on this one verse, Luke one thirty-five, Rex? Yes. Yep. It's not like the uh, traditional Brigham Young teaching uh, that... I switched that up, yeah. But this was a miraculous conception. Yes, absolutely. Other thoughts, questions, points of feedback? Yeah, Joe. She should have, because uh, she was told here by the angel, and I believe on another occasion she was told that He's going to be the Son of God. You shall call His name Jesus, and He will be, you know, fulfilling the prophecy, Emmanuel, God with us. Yeah. Yep. Now, obviously, she didn't know as much as we know now. There's that song, Mary, Did You Know? It goes through all those things that He did. Great song. Uh, there's no way she could have known that He would walk on water, as the song says, you know. But there are some things that she was told, like right here. He's going to be a holy child. He will be called the Son of God. Pretty amazing. Yes, yeah, they were informed. Yep. Other thoughts? Sarah? Yes, yeah. Yes. So, um, it's, what's interesting is Jesus comes from the Hebrew word. So, Jesus is uh, Jesus in Greek, but it comes from the Hebrew name Joshua. Jesus' name was essentially Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. So, the uh, idea that he will be called Emmanuel, God with us, that is not necessarily, his first name will be Emmanuel. Like there are people today, usually with an E named Emmanuel, you know, whatever. So that prophecy wasn't necessarily that that was going to be his first name on his birth certificate, but rather he's going to be known as God with us. And so the, and the name Joshua, Yahweh saves, of course, is absolutely fitting for who he was. So pretty cool. Yeah. Any other thoughts or questions? This juncture? All right. So we've learned the Holy Spirit through this set of proof texts, is eternal, He is glorious, He is omnipotent, and now we'll go to Psalm 139 and see how He is omnipresent. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Psalm 139, starting at verse 7, down through verse 10. Stan, you got it? All right, very good. Well, again, omnipresence is an attribute of God. It means to be in multiple places at one time. In God's case, He is everywhere all at once, right? He fills heaven and earth. Jeremiah 23 says, there is no place that you could go to escape the presence of God. 
Now, we recognize that there's a difference between, uh, say, a couple of crackheads shooting up in the back of a nightclub in the presence of God and people who are today in heaven in the presence of God. Right? There's a difference between those two. Now, both of them could be said to be in the presence of God. God sees all things, and he's, he's present in that sense in that you can't escape God. You can't hide from God. However, um, in heaven, we have something of, a, of an amplified presence of God with relationship harmony. That makes that different, doesn't it? So when we say that heaven is simply the presence of God, we actually need to condition that a little bit, don't we? Because, again, Jeremiah 23, 23, I think, it says, you fill heaven and earth. And, but we recognize that not every spot is heaven, okay? Uh, and so there's, a, there's an intensification of the presence of God in heaven. We will see and know as we are seen and known when we are in that final place with God. But, uh, but in a true sense, the Holy Spirit is everywhere. He is omnipresent. So this passage starts in verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? And the, the answer to that question isn't, oh, just, uh, you know, run down the street, there's a little hole down there, and everyone knows God can't see into that hole. Okay, that's not the answer. The answer is nowhere. And notice in verse 7, the two questions, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? There's an equation there where the Holy Spirit is, the very presence of God is. The Holy Spirit's presence isn't like some substandard presence, but the Holy Spirit's presence is the very presence of God. All right, so He is omnipresent and He is God absolutely. Any thoughts, questions here on this passage or this attribute of the Spirit? Okay. Good, good. You may. The presence of God? Yes. Yep. Hell is God's hell. It's not devil's hell. So uh, hell is where people experience the wrath of God, not the wrath of Satan. Satan doesn't have any wrath towards sin. And so, I mean, ultimately, Satan and the rest of the fallen angels are going to experience God's wrath eternally with fallen mankind who was never redeemed. And that will be experienced in hell. So again, that's another one of those phrases that we have to be real careful when we say... uh, you know, you'll, when you die, you'll either go to be with God or be separated from God for eternity. In a sense, that's true, of course, but we have to qualify that and explain what we mean because I think a lot of people have in their mind that hell is just the absence of God, and that's not true. There's never any absence of God. So people got to wrestle with that a little bit, and that can be uncomfortable for people, and it's like, ooh, God is present in hell, and he's the one inflicting wrath. I thought he just gave people over to the devil, and he had his pitchfork, and he was poking them, and, you know, it was hot and stuff, and you can't fix the thermostat, and that's what hell is. And, but when, in reality, hell is ultimately going to be the lake of fire. Hades gets thrown into the lake of fire. And it burns forever and ever as God has designed it, and it's his wrath that people will be experiencing, the wrath of their holy creator. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, you will either meet God as your Savior or as your judge. That's it. You know, for those of us who have been redeemed, we are not meeting God as our eternal judge who is sentencing us to death. We are meeting Him as our Savior. And though as we looked at in the sermon last week, all Christians will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that is a reality, and they will be judged, we will be judged for the deeds of the body, whether good or evil. That is not for salvation. We don't come to Him with our salvation on the line. Everyone who does come to Him after death with their salvation on the line will be sentenced to hell eternally. No one who comes to Him and says, okay, at the end, you know, when I go to God and He'll he'll determine whether I'm saved or not, that's too late. That's the great white throne judgment. 
and they will then end up in the lake of fire. And so when we talk about this in shorthand, we have to be a little bit careful about what we can say or what we do say. But it is possible to speak in shorthand, and you can simply say it's either heaven or hell. You will meet God as either Savior or judge. They, obviously, the person you're talking to may have all kinds of false notions of what that means, but if that person gets saved, that begins this course of the Christian life where you start learning about how all that plays out. Yes. 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 Right, we don't fear uh, his judgment. We should fear the discipline of the Lord. Right, to the Corinthians, some of them were being killed because they weren't observing the Lord's table correctly. And uh, some of them were sick because they weren't observing the Lord's table correctly, Paul said. So there is an aspect of we still revere his holiness and that has bearing on how we live. Uh, but we don't fear him, we should not fear him, as we did when we were in our flesh. Yes, that's it. Yep. Yeah, so you have the Apostles' Creed that uses that language, uh, specifically. He descended into hell or the grave. Um, you have uh, a couple of, well, really just one passage that gets into that, and that's 1 Peter 3, where he descended, nah, two places. Ephesians 4 also says he descended into the lower parts of the earth. But 1 Peter 3 is the one that gets a little more specific, where it says he proclaimed to those in prison. Uh, he, he made proclamation to those in prison is how it's worded. And uh, that is a notoriously difficult passage to totally understand what was going on. And you got some different options there. Uh, but yes, that in First Peter three, that's where that's outlined. Okay, First Corinthians two, we see that the Holy Spirit is omniscient. Not only is He omnipotent, omnipresent, but He is omniscient. So let's go First Corinthians two, verses ten and eleven. First Corinthians two. 10 and 11. Who's got that one for us? Two verses. Go ahead, Sarah. Right. Can you know more than the thoughts of God? I agree. And I'm getting a phone call. Who on earth is calling me during the middle of Sunday school? Uh, don't they know? Uh, <clears throat> so... You cannot get more knowledgeable than having the very thoughts of God. And the Holy Spirit searches the thoughts of God, knows the thoughts of God. Pretty amazing. You can't get any wiser, any more knowledgeable than the Holy Spirit himself. He is omniscient. He knows all things. Okay? And then John 16, 13, and we're going to come back to this passage It'll be the, at the very end of the class if we make it that far today. In John 16, Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit. And one of the attributes that he gives is that he is of truth. And you could even say that the Spirit is truth. Jesus, of course, referred to himself as truth. John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth and the life. You could say the same of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13 says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. So the spirit is truth. He is of truth. He is true through and through in all that he does and all that he says. There is no falsehood, not an ounce, not a drop, not a milligram, whatever our smallest unit of measurement is that we have of falsehood or deceit within the Holy Spirit. So you just take these passages, and there are more we could go to, but eternal, glorious, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and truth, you have to conclude the Holy Spirit is God, right? We've got no other avenue here that we can go down 
Don't know why you'd want to go down one of those other avenues, but you can conclude from Scripture that the overwhelming testimony is that the Holy Spirit is God. Okay? So before we get into Jesus' teachings, I'll see if you guys have any thoughts or questions on the attributes of God here. This person called the church line and says, I want to know what time church starts today with the voicemail. Should I call the person back? Okay, all right, all right. Let's, okay, let's do it, let's do it. There we go. Okay. Oh. oh, here we go. There's the button. Everybody be quiet now. If we're going to do this, you got to keep the volume up. Okay. Hi, we're sorry we missed your call, but uh, church starts today at 1045. Uh, what, what's your name? My name's Alice. Alice, very good. I'm going to try to make it. Okay, very, very good. Look forward to seeing you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Hey, I don't know if that's the same Alice that we know already, but we'll find out. Okay. <clears throat> All right, John chapter 14 is where we'll go as you kind of flip a page or two back to get there. Any thoughts or questions where we are here? All right. Okay, well, the Bible teaches that the Spirit guides, convicts, works, prays, searches, forbids, speaks, and loves. These are all actions ascribed to the Holy Spirit. Pretty amazing. The Bible also teaches that the Spirit can be lied to, He can be resisted, He can be grieved, quenched, and insulted. He is God, and He is personal. Okay? And we're really going to see that through Jesus' teachings here. John 14 through 16, you got your passages listed out there. He's going to go into detail and show us how he is both God and he is very, very personal. In fact, in this administration of time, the Holy Spirit is the one with whom we should have the most personal relationship because he comes to indwell and to guide, direct, lead us through this life. So let's uh, really... Consider these words of Christ and how it applies to our lives. Uh, John 14 through 16 contains many deep truths about who the Spirit is and what He does among men. Okay. John 14, 16 and 17. Who will read that for us? John 14, 16 and 17. Dean, go ahead. Right, so again, we see Spirit of Truth there at the beginning of 17. That's what we just saw in chapter 16. But Dean, in your uh, translation in verse 16, it said, Advocate. I will give you another advocate. What other words do we have? Helper. Anything else? Counselor. Very good. Any other? Advocate, helper, counselor. I thought maybe someone would have comforter. Okay. Okay, yeah, there you go. So what is revolutionary? Let's think about being in Jesus' audience here originally. What, is, what was revolutionary about what Jesus said in verse 16? Verse 16 of chapter 14? Okay, yeah. Well, what about verse 16? What does he introduce here that's revolutionary? Hey, now, why is that revolutionary? He didn't, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and before, the Holy Spirit would come and go upon people. And now, he's saying that he's going to send this helper to be with you how long? Hey, that is pretty startling. If you're standing there as a Jew hearing this, that's not what you've heard before. That's not, that's not what has been taught before. But now Jesus, the Messiah, standing before you saying, this is what's happening now in the program. The helper, the advocate is coming to be with you forever. Whoops, got that out of order. Um, so yeah, just as Renee was saying, in the Old Testament, he came and went. We talked, I think, a little bit last week about Saul and David and how that's probably the clearest example in Scripture of how this happened. But you see it too with Balaam, 
happen with him. And there's other places in the Old Testament where this is mentioned that the Spirit came upon somebody and then he left. But that's not how it is anymore. Well, this is where we can see it in the Old Testament with David and Saul. Let's go ahead and flip back there because this is important for you to grasp and understand that this really was something new in their day. Jesus was introducing a new ministry of God that the Holy Spirit would come to permanently dwell with God's people. 1 Samuel chapter 10 is where we'll go, and we'll hit a few passages there in sequence. 1 Samuel 10, starting at verse 9. So this is talking about uh, Samuel and Saul, I believe. Trying to make sure I have the right context here. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Then it happened when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about on that day. When they came to the hill there, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God came upon him mightily, so that he prophesied among them. Okay, so this is what was predicted back in verse 6, that the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him mightily, and he shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. But the Spirit of God coming upon someone mightily in order to uh, generate prophetic utterances here, that's what's happening with Samuel. So here we have the Holy Spirit coming. Let's go to chapter 11 now, verse 6. 1 Samuel 11, 6. You have the same thing happening to Saul. It says, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily, when he heard these words, he became very angry. So what's, what is, of course, implied when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone? It's implied that beforehand, yeah, he wasn't there, okay? And so they were without the Holy Spirit, then he comes upon them mightily. Okay, now let's go over to chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. David being anointed here. 1 Samuel 16. Someone want to read 12 to 15? Okay. All right. So you have the Spirit coming upon David, who was with him how long? How long was the Holy Spirit with David? There you go, from that day forward, right? So we have here the Holy Spirit coming upon this new king who's anointed, one who's going to be king. At his anointing, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, and he is going to be with David from that day forward, it says. And then at the same time, you have verse 14, the Holy Spirit leaving Saul. Now, this is not because the Holy Spirit is unable to be in two places at once. Okay, we already covered that. Uh, it's not that, oh, to be with David, he had to leave Saul. That's not what's happening. However, there's something here where God is signifying he's the man. So he's being anointed by Samuel the prophet. He's being given the Holy Spirit. And this, of course, is just the continuing downgrade of Saul's kingly rule here. And if you've read the story, you know it just keeps going down, down, down. gets worse and worse. And Saul now is without the Holy Spirit, and he is being tormented. Okay? There's an evil spirit from the Lord terrorizing him, verse 14 says, and that is his new reality. Instead of having the Holy Spirit, he is being tormented by an evil spirit. No, no. Now, he's intimately involved with our conscience, but he is not, it's not equated with our conscience. Our consciences aren't eternal. Our consciences aren't omnipresent. Our consciences aren't glorious, et cetera, et cetera. Um, however, he comes upon the believer especially in molding and shaping our consciences and convicting us not only of sin, but even of things that aren't sin but we can't do from faith. He leads and guides us 
like drinking is one of those classic examples. Some Christians drink, some don't. It's a conscience issue. And the Holy Spirit is involved in leading us in those conscience issues. Okay? Now, uh, he is not to be equated with our consciences because our consciences aren't God, and he is, right? Yeah, we, we covered that. Okay? And so he is, he's eternally God, and our consciences are created. All people have a conscience, whether you're a believer or not. Uh, yet it is with the Christian that the Holy Spirit comes upon and starts molding and shaping our consciences. Mandy. Yeah. Yeah. There are a few guys in Scripture where you just, we just don't know if they ended up being saved or not, you know? Um, Solomon's another one. You'll, <laughs> you look at his life and you think, woo. He got a lot of things wrong. <laughs> um, how could he have been saved? Uh, but then he was also used by God to write Scripture, and he was wise, exercised wisdom, uh, had an understanding. I mean, you think of the end of Ecclesiastes. This is my conclusion, that you fear God and obey his commandments. Right? So um, w- the short answer is, is, is an unsatisfying one. We don't know. Uh, however, we also need to recognize from a theological perspective that there's some sort of a difference here in how people were saved and sanctified. Now, when I say difference in how they were saved, uh, don't go too radical with that. Everyone was always justified by faith alone, by God's grace, okay? That's clear. However, were people sealed with the Holy Spirit and indwelt with the Holy Spirit in the same way we are? Well, obviously not. There's something different happening here with how they were in the Old Testament, sanctified by God. We are sanctified primarily through the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and He brings about fruit. They didn't have that passage in the Old Testament about the fruit of the Spirit because of His permanent indwelling. So it just all worked a little bit differently. And it's just unsatisfying to kind of land there, but that's where we got to land. Other thoughts or questions on... Probably several thoughts and questions, uh, <clears throat> but let's keep going in First Samuel too. First Samuel nineteen, verse twenty. Last one I want to read in First Samuel, where again we see a difference between Old Testament times and New Testament times. First Samuel nineteen twenty, nineteen twenty. That was a good year, wasn't it? <laughs> it says, verse 20, Then Saul sent messengers to take David, but when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying with Samuel standing and presiding over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. All right. So, in a very interesting story. These are all uh, great stories that if you're not familiar with them, you should read through First Samuel and learn these. But again, you have this the same concept where the Spirit of God wasn't, suddenly He was. And when He comes upon people, He comes upon people in a mighty way because He is omnipotent. And the result here is um, that they would prophesy, all right? You also have, uh, I think I mentioned this last week too, Psalm 51. I can't remember what verse. But in Psalm 51, David prays to God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Now, when's the last time you prayed that prayer? I've never prayed that prayer. We don't need to, because we are promised He will be with us forever. But David didn't have that promise. We have the narration in 1 Samuel where it says the Holy Spirit was with him from that day forward, but it wasn't like God said, Your spirit, or my spirit will be with you from this day forward. So David, knowing that the Holy Spirit would come and go, he prayed, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. But you, Christian... Do not have to pray that. Are you thankful? You should be. Okay, you should be. All right? Thoughts, questions on John 14 related to the Old Testament, how Jesus said, He will be with you forever. And that. Mm. Yes, He. 
Yes, yep. Yes, that's right. Yes, at, talk about the uh, sovereignty of God here. He chooses when and where He shows up, doesn't He? Yes, He does. Okay, all right. <clears throat> Couldn't tell if we were getting a lot of agreement or not. Uh, disciples of Jesus receive the Holy Spirit from God to be with them forever. All right? Keep reading in John 14. We'll go down to verse 25. John 14, 25 to 31. And what I want us to see is really in the first couple of verses there, 25 and 26. But we'll read down to the end of the chapter, which is verse 31. So who would like to read this for us? John 14, 25 to 31. Thanks, Mandy. All right. So again, I want us to dwell on really verse 26. And here's the question. What is Jesus talking about in verse 26 concerning remembering things? What do you think? Okay, do we see that playing out in the Bible, or is this a promise that we don't get to see the fulfillment of? Okay, in, in what way? Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's, what's always been fascinating about that passage in particular, uh, Scripture tells us that when that happened, he and Jesus locked eyes. Jesus was walking by. It says that Jesus looked at him. <sighs> Your Savior that you just bailed on, he walks by and looks at you. Oh, <laughs> like I, I can't imagine what kind of face Jesus was making. I don't want to try to project that onto the text. But no matter what kind of face he was making, wouldn't that just make your heart sink? So yes, um, he is talking to his disciples here. His disciples who, of course, were the apostles. And what did the apostles end up doing as their main ministry? Writing Scripture. So, one of the ways that we see this playing out is when they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we'll get into that next week. Uh, when they were inspired by the Spirit, they were able to write Scripture and talk about what Jesus said specifically. Um, you've got the apostles remembering what Christ had said. And even those who did not write scripture, like Bartholomew or G uh, Judas, not Iscariot, you know, you've got all these different disciples and not all of them wrote scripture. I'm sure they were able to remember at the right times when they were brought before uh, the local rulers for judgment or when they were planting churches. It is said that Thomas went to India the disciple Thomas, and he planted churches in India. And as an apostle, I'm sure he had a particular authority in his remembering of what Jesus said in preaching. Because remember, they weren't opening a New Testament when they were planting churches back then. They weren't saying, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. Okay, So it was a different ballgame. Dean. Yes. Yes. Yeah. In 1 Corinthians 10, when Paul's, or 11, when Paul's talking about communion, he quotes Jesus. And in our Bibles, it's red letters. If you have a red letter Bible, red letters, Paul quoting Jesus from the gospel of either Luke or Matthew. It's pretty amazing. It's the same, same thing that shows up in the gospels. Yes. Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah, especially John. John probably didn't write his gospel. So the one who quoted Jesus in John 14, 6 about remembering, John probably didn't write his gospel until 50 to 60 years after Jesus had ascended into heaven. So for John to write this verse, talking about remembering things, shows that he was able to remember things. Pretty amazing. Yes. Yes, absolutely. 
That's in Luke. I think that's Luke 14, somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah, don't worry about what you'll, you'll say in that day. Yep. Yep. Um, verse 27. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. How does Jesus administer peace to the believer, do you think, in the context of what he just said in verse 26? Don't overthink it. Yeah, there you go. All right. With the Holy Spirit who comes as comforter, counselor, teacher, helper, advocate, all these words we could use, he's leaving his peace. He doesn't leave us orphans. He leaves us his peace. And you can jot these passages down. Romans chapter 5 especially goes into detail with that, where we see that the Holy Spirit leads us into peace because He has been poured out into our hearts by, by God the Father. The Holy Spirit poured out into your heart, overflowing, and that leads you into peace. Okay? Good. I need to think of a different phrase other than thoughts or questions. It's a different phrase. Uh, any rebuttals? Or? Yeah, yeah. I'll put you on the spot with that one, yeah. Okay, on to the next one. Oh, there's more. But wait, there's more. Also, Romans 14, 15 to 17, and 15 to 13. All these passages in Romans speak to the ministry of the Holy Spirit uh, coming to administer uh, peace and to be with the disciples, uh, even to us today, right? Not just the disciples and apostles. He had a special ministry among them, but He is with us today in the same sense. He is totally, truly, fully with us, okay? Good, good. Three, two, one. John 15, 26 and 27. Next chapter. Yes. Oh. Yes. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah, so that's that... um, it's Romans 8. I don't know if it's those particular verses. But in Romans 8, yeah, he, with groanings too deep for words. Yeah, yeah, somewhere farther down in chapter 8, where when you don't know how to pray as you ought, he prays for you. Yeah, uh, you, you think you're secure? Yeah, I'd say so. You think God's got you? Yeah, I'd say And with groanings too deep for words, which means nothing's coming out of your mouth. Too deep for words. Yeah. And if something is coming out of your mouth, it's a groaning of agony. I mean, have you ever been in a situation where there are no words and just, oh, something like that comes out? Even in those moments, the Holy Spirit interceding for you, praying for you. Honey. Isn't that amazing? The Bible doesn't lose its relevancy, does it? Praise God. Okay, two verses at the end of John 15, the last two verses of that chapter, 26 and 27. Someone want to read that for us? Stan, go ahead. All right, sweet passage, another sweet one. What's the Holy Spirit's number one job in our lives as Jesus teaches us here? What's He doing? Say say that again. Of? Okay, and of Jesus Himself, right? He will testify about me. There are some groups out there that try to say that they are more in tune with the Holy Spirit of God. And they try to show that by being wild and crazy. And oftentimes, what they're doing has nothing to do with glorifying Jesus. What they're doing is not testifying 
to the teachings or the works of Jesus in any way. Uh, for instance, there was a, uh, uh, a event, I don't know how many years ago, I think it was late 80s, early 90s, the Toronto Blessing. It was, uh, maybe it was earlier than that. But they, in, within the charismatic world of Christianity, it was claimed to be a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It happened at the Toronto Airport Church that met there. And the result of that event was people that were gathered there who were feeling the Spirit or however they wanted to phrase it, were down on all fours barking like animals. They were rolling around on the ground. They were uh, just screaming babble, pretending to be drunk, all of those things, and saying this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So you go to Jesus' teaching that says, He will testify about me, and you think, what on earth does any of that have to do with Jesus? Right? The Holy Spirit leads us into truth and righteousness in accordance with what Jesus taught, and Jesus never, ever instructed any of his disciples to do anything that vaguely resembled any of that. Okay? How can you tell if an action attributed to the Spirit is false? So just use the example I just gave you. How could you tell that that is false? Layman's terms, plain English, what do you think? There you go. Doesn't line up with Scripture. Doesn't line up with the character of Jesus or His teachings. It's just nonsense. Because if we abandon those standards, we could literally do anything and say it was the Spirit of God. If we don't need to have the Word of God as a standard, well, let's just go around and do whatever we want and say, well, the Spirit led me to do it. Yeah, they do, (laughs) right? Well, God told me to cheat on my wife. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Yeah, you've, have you heard stuff like that? I bet you have. I know I have. But God led me to do this or that. Well, what about what he says in his word? Go. Oh, yeah, that's right. If people don't accept the Holy Spirit, uh, you know, example or excuse, they'll use the devil, right? Yeah. All right. Um, John 16, 5 through 11. So just going forward a little bit in the narrative, Jesus continues to teach us about the Holy Spirit. Who can read those verses for us? 16, 5 to 11. Got it. Thank you. So... Concentrating on those last few verses about what the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world of, it's, I think, a legitimate question to ask. What do these three things mean? He's convicting the world of three things, sin, righteousness, judgment. Hmm, how do we make sense of this? And notice, too, it does say the world. doesn't say the church, doesn't say believers, doesn't say disciples. It says the world. So how do you make heads or tails of this? Convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Any thoughts? No. Again, this is another one of those passages where we don't have really extended commentary too much beyond this. And so there are a few options for how we can interpret this. But certainly one is, yeah, entrance into the faith. If you're going to become a believer, you can't do that without a conviction of sin, which is actually a major problem in the American church today is you have a bunch of people who claim to be Christians who have never been convicted of their sin, and they just add Jesus on to whatever lifestyle they already have. But what else can we say out of this passage? Sin, righteousness, judgment. Yeah. Well, and it is interesting when you see verse 9 there how Jesus does give this little phrase, which doesn't help us too much, but it helps us. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. So you could almost make this to be the judgment of God abiding on them in the present. Maybe not they're being convicted in such a way that causes them to repent, but they're being convicted like someone who's a convicted felon. 
who is labeled as guilty. Judgment is abiding upon that person because they do not believe in him. That's... Yes. Yes. Romans chapter 1, that even though they, can, they know God exists, they suppress that truth. Yeah. Hmm? Yep. Yes. 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 It, like, um... I don't know why I didn't know which hand to look at. I'm the one who has these hands. This hand of mine has uh, calluses on it because of my guitar playing. And that's the same thing that can happen to the conscience of an unbeliever. You can see this especially with children. Some children can have a, a very sensitive conscience. In fact, I would say most children have an active conscience. But over the course of time, as a person continues to pursue sin especially with more knowledge rejecting God, that conscience becomes calloused and more numb. Like when you're first learning to play guitar, if anyone's tried, you know it hurts like the dickens, right? When you're pressing these really thin strings into your flesh, like it doesn't seem like something you should be doing. But experienced guitar players say, well, just wait till you get your calluses as an encouragement, okay? You build up those calluses. Well, with an unbeliever, you, their conscience can become calloused, absolutely. And so the Holy Spirit here is interacting with the conscience of the unbeliever in some way, in that even a callous conscience is being convicted because that person does not believe in Jesus. Dean, do you have a thought to add? And in fact, in John's Gospel is the only place we get the teaching of Christ that tells us how the world will know that we are his disciples. And how is it? Our love for one another. Not that how other believers will know that we're believers, how the world will, will know that we're believers, through our love for one another. Okay? You may. Yeah, um, I'll try to answer that in 45 seconds. So, um, in Old Testament times, it's the same as now. Now is the same as Old Testament times in this regard. People who die in their sins are judged in their sins. They're not judged because they never heard about Jesus. They're judged by their sin. Okay, so that's why missions exists. That's why we should care about getting people around the world to get the message of the gospel out is because they will die in their sins. Just like someone in the Bible Belt who's heard the gospel his whole life and goes to the grave rejecting Jesus, he's judged because of his sins. So will someone else, another creature, who is just as sinful, who has never heard the gospel. So that's why, because if, the, if it was true that someone who has never heard the gospel would be saved, the best thing we could do is just put them in a big silo somewhere and don't let anybody go. But... We have the gospel that's been given to us. We need to go out and reach them with the gospel. Let me pray, and then we've we got to be done. We're like four minutes past. Okay, Father, thank you so much for this day once again. Help us as we go into the next service to continue to learn about you and grow and honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.